I'm Dennis Foley. Now, here's Jack Riccardi. I got a new nickname for you. Uh-oh. You ready? All right. From now on, after yesterday, <laughs> your, your new nickname is Tornado Foley. Tornado Foley. I just... Doesn't that have a ring to it? Storm Force Foley. Yeah, no, I like Tornado Foley. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds WWE, but it also sounds kind of like, you know, the guy that had all the tornado information yesterday, you know? Kinda. Little Mick Foley-esque. You know. I see? Smackdown. See? You're, you're already getting into it, I can tell. I can tell you like it. Yeah. So it's all yours. Now I need to go start chasing storms and get the, <laughs> get the station vehicle no. going. No, no, no. Chase them right. Chase them from your desk. Okay. All right. Well, good afternoon. Four oh six. Um, we're gonna we're gonna start with. Uh, I'm gonna start the show in a way we normally don't. I'm gonna play a, a piece of audio. We we normally work some pieces of news audio into the show, but I, I want to start with this and then build off of this point because what I'm gonna play for you is something that we're supposed to just make a quick joke about or laugh at and then move on from. And today I'm not gonna do that. So this is the Vice President of the United States yesterday in an event in Louisiana. Um, and, and, and this is what she, heartbeat away from the presidency, okay? And this is what she said. Take a listen. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. What the heck? It, that's not okay. I mean, that's word salad, okay? That's vomiting up a bunch of words because you've been told it's your turn at the microphone. That doesn't mean anything. You can't suss any deep meaning out of that. The significance of the passage of time, when you think about it, is the significance of the passage of time. And it reminds me of when she did an interview where she was asked about the COVID response, and her answer was, what we need to do about COVID is what we do every day. We need to do what we do. <laughs> do that thing you do. Now, I don't think Kamala Harris is dumb. And, and maybe it's easy to just move on from that. I, I think she is somebody who believes she's smarter than she is, which is a different thing, right? That's a different conversation. She believes she's so smart that she doesn't have to prepare, read briefing books, think, uh, take a briefing, she can do news conferences. She can go do shuttle diplomacy in Europe during a war. She can sit down for high-stakes TV interviews and not be prepared, and she'll just wing it, and she'll get through it because she's smart, and people have told her all her life she is, and she's the freaking vice president of the United States. And it doesn't mean she's dumb. It means she's unprepared. But Kamala Harris is a symptom, not a problem. You know, I grew up, you've heard me say this before, I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in a, in a town just outside of Boston. And that means that I grew up with the most liberal, feminist people we have in this country. So I think I am 
qualified to speak a little bit about what feminists have always said they wanted, what they've always demanded, because I heard it. I heard it in school. I heard it in the news. I heard it growing up. I heard it at the, at, at the house. I heard it from my peers. What feminists have always said they wanted was an equal chance to do the work men do and to show they could do it as well or better. That's what they've always wanted. That's what they've demanded. But is that what has happened? No. Kamala Harris is what's happened. Kamala Harris looks like the first woman to ever be vice president of the United States, but she's clearly unqualified. She's there because she creates the appearance of a victory for women, a a, a shattering of the glass ceiling, but she's not any good at this. And she's there because of identity politics, not because of feminism. She's not there because Joe Biden wanted to do something for American women. She's there because Joe Biden wanted to do something for Joe Biden. He doesn't care. If we ever have to worry about Kamala Harris as president, that'll mean Joe Biden's not in the picture anymore. He's not worried. He won't have to live with it. These are hard things to say and hear, but you've got to hear them. They're true. She is the product of identity politics. She is not as good as or better than a comparable man, but she checks the boxes. You know, Judge Jackson, who's going through her confirmation hearings right now, much, much more intelligent and substantive than Kamala Harris. I'm not taking anything away from Judge Jackson, but President Biden took something away from her, a big something. Because he pre-qualified her nomination by saying, I'm going to nominate an African-American woman. He didn't say, look who I have found, who is the most qualified person I could find. And people went, wow, not only is she super qualified, but she's an African-American woman. No, he didn't give her that opportunity. He diminished her and reduced her to the best of a small pool of people. So I'm not taking anything away from her, but she also is a product of identity politics. She is not the triumph of excellence. She is not, we found the best person, and it happens to be a woman. It happens to be an African-American woman. So this is not feminism winning. This is feminism selling out. This is feminism saying, ah, oh, it's been a long struggle. We'll take, we'll take the, uh, the symbolic victories. We'll take the visual victories. We'll settle for the Kamala Harris's of the world. There's so many Kamala Harris's, right? Not just in politics, but in the corporate world, everywhere. I think about The View, the television show on ABC, The View, which according to The View, I don't know if this is true, I didn't look it up, but they say they are the most watched daytime television show in America. And if you've never seen it, The View is a panel of four or five women, I think it's five women, And they sit down every day for an hour, and they talk about what's going on in the world. And I will say this about the women on The View. I'm not saying Kamala Harris is dumb. I think she's just got an inflated sense of her own capabilities. The women on The View are dumb. I mean, they're they're morons. You You can't watch it without coming away with that. And here's again what I don't understand about feminism. Feminists were demand. I heard it all my life. I grew up in a bastion of feminism. They always said, we want, we want to show we can do as well or better. Just give us the chance and we will shine and we will, 
reveal our excellence. Right? That was the whole that was the war cry. The women on the view are embarrassing to women. I feel I feel embarrassed for American women. This is supposed to be what it sounds like if if women got together and talked things over over coffee. The view is what that's supposed to sound like. Does that seem right to you? That's a sellout of feminism. That's a sellout of women. Suggesting that the view represents the voice of American women is like suggesting that Leah Thomas represents the best in women swimming in America. It's a sellout. And I know it's happened. The part I can't understand is why they've let it happen, why they've accepted it. Did they just get tired? Did the feminist movement just get tired? And say, well, we've put up a good fight, and we're getting old, and we, you know, we just, well, let's just take what we can get. Let's take, we'll take half the loaf. It looks like we've moved into every strata, stratus of American life. It looks like we've shattered every ceiling and barrier. We really haven't, because it's really just liberal men making themselves feel better and look better by playing the identity politics checklist game, and that's all it is. Of course, it also reduces actual excellence in women to the same low standard. So if you really got there as a woman, if you got that promotion, if you got that job, if you rose to the top through hard work and merit, unfortunately, it taints you too because they surrendered, because they sold out. And there's just no getting around this. 210-599-5555. 210-599-5555. Now, you even see it with the Jackson confirmation hearings. Now, I haven't watched all of them, but from what I've seen, she's handling herself pretty well. And everything that's happening is ideologically predictable, right? The Republicans are bringing up objections you would expect them to bring up. She's answering them. She is the nominee you would expect from a Democratic president. I have no issue with any of that. But the liberal Democratic senators that are white knighting her and, and coming up to her, uh, riding in on their, on their horses to defend her in their shining armor, pathetic. Where were they? Where was all this chivalry over Amy Coney Barrett? Where was all this chivalry when Republican presidents nominated conservative women? If there's supposed to be dignity and chivalry attached to the treatment of women, then wouldn't it have to be in all cases? No, it's not. If a woman is a conservative, you can call her a hand, uh, you know, the Handmaid's Tale, and you can mock her faith, and you can mock her family, and you can mock that she adopted a child, and you can mock that she didn't have an abortion. You can do all of that. It's all okay. And these Democratic senators, it's like somebody sewed their mouth shut. But when it's Katanji Brown Jackson, a woman who, by the way, seems to be completely capable of defending herself. Oh, they trip over each other to defend her. That has nothing to do with her. Nothing. Because identity politics isn't about the recipient of the promotion or the recipient of the, of the, um, job or the recipient of the opportunity. Identity politics is about virtue signaling for the person giving it, granting it issuing it so joe biden served joe biden with this nomination and these democrats Durman and blumenthal and these other these other losers they're, they're, they're serving themselves they want to make sure that the women back home see them riding to the rescue of judge jackson 
I don't know if this works or not. I, I, the thing about identity politics that I've never been able to quite wrap my head around is, are people really drinking this down to the bottom of the cup, or are they starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, this tastes funny. This isn't right. I'm hoping it's that, but I don't know. What do you think? I'll probably get some email today. I'm sure it's going to happen. At some point, somebody is going to say, who do you think you are? Talking about feminists and what feminism should be about and what feminists should want. You're a man. So let me just deal with that right up front and then we'll move on. We don't want to waste anybody's time. Feminism is the advocacy of women's rights and anyone can be a feminist. I think I'm a feminist. I I want to see women have equal rights. I'm the father of a daughter. If I want them for her, I want them for all women. If she should have them, every woman should have them. So that's where I'm coming from. You don't have to be a woman to talk about this, care about this, have an opinion about it, have seen it in action. And I'm telling you, whether you like it or not, and you're probably not going to like it if you are a feminist, this is not what you want to hear. What you want to hear is, yay, victory. It's a total sellout. It's been a total sellout. First, you've been sold out by your own leaders. Second, you've been sold out by the political party that essentially branded itself your saviors, the Democratic Party of the United States. And then you're selling out yourself if you don't see that Kamala Harris is an embarrassment and a joke. They didn't even try to find a person who would be qualified to be one heartbeat away from the presidency. They just picked her. It was so, it was so easy, so obvious to them. Every time she opens her mouth, it's a setback. And I'm not saying that every guy thinks this, but you know there are men out there that are going, see, that's why we can't have a woman president. That's why women shouldn't be doing this. Furthers that cause. It furthers that argument. It's, it's in no way an argument for feminism or the equal rights of women. The, 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 just her daily word salad it's she's the salad bar of world salad. she's the all-you-can-eat salad bar of word salad is a setback it's a sellout tell me what you think 210-599-5555 now i think that when i was uh growing up and i so I'm, I'm, a, I'm at the beginning of what they call Generation X. I was born in 1965. So when I was growing up in a very liberal stronghold with a lot of very strong women, and not just in my family, but, but, a, but in, in school and in, on the scene, you know, at that time up there, um, what I heard was the demand that they are at the table, they are in the meeting. They have all the same educational opportunities. They have all, all the same opportunities of all kinds. Look at, look at women's sports. When I was growing up, this was the time that women's sports was being litigated. And it was by court order. People forget this now because it seems like it's always been this way, but it was by court order that they said women have to have equal facilities. If there's a, a team uh, and a locker room and equipment and a coach and, and all these uh, things that you've paid for with taxpayer dollars for the boys, you've got to provide equal access, equal um, 
you know, structure in the sports programs in the schools for women. I'm paraphrasing it badly, but that's what it said. That's what they, that was the goal. So if a boy wants to be an athlete and taxpayer dollars go to that, a girl wants to be an athlete, taxpayer dollars go to that. Okay. And, and it's been that way for so long, it, it feels like it's always been that way. And now we'll look at what's happening. We talked about it a little bit yesterday. And by the way, we, we had tons of response to the um, open letter that a young woman named Kurt Herzl, uh, Kate Herzl wrote about her experiences as a athlete and student and the experiences of going to an all-women's school and belonging to sororities. And, and her, her point is these are spaces in which women grow and thrive, and you're, you're throwing them away. You're, you're erasing them. Why would you do that? Why are women doing that? Why are women party to that? You know, if you're a woman and you're letting this happen to the girls, it's like you don't care what happens to them. You got your opportunity or you stood on the shoulders of feminism and now you're letting it happen. I know these are harsh things to say and I'm not trying to drive you away from this show. Maybe I already have, but I think, I think we need to ask these questions. What, why are you, why are you, why are you okay with this? And where, where was that fervor that I remember when I was younger? And, and believe me, it was on talk radio, it was in newspaper columns, it was in political debates, it was in the politics of the moment, it was in the, the writing of the moment. And it was, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a voice, it was a roar. Where has that gone? And maybe things like that do just sort of mellow out over time. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I just need to recognize that every cause burns itself out. And they could only maintain that level of whatever for so long. And now it's like, oh, well, you know. But it's amazing to me to see. And I will say one other thing. We're going to go to your calls, 210-599-5555. When you would hear them talk, the feminists of the 60s and 70s, when you would hear them talk, they believed their enemy was people like me, conservatives and men. But their enemy has turned out to be the party they embraced and the people who claim to be their defenders. Their enemy is within their gates, not outside their gates. It's very strange. You see this? Mike and Bernie writes, I wonder what Mitt Romney thinks about Biden's binders full of black women. <laughs> I don't doubt that they have them. I don't doubt that they have them. I mean, that, that Mitt Romney answer was that kind of an answer, too. Oh, I've got binders full of women. The, the, the wonder of it all is the sellout part. That the, the people I grew up listening sounded like they'd never settle for what they've now settled for. Kamala Harris is Exhibit A of just just settling for the appearance of breaking a glass ceiling. 210-599-5555. What are your thoughts about all that? Uh, about the, the, the way that feminism has sold out to identity politics? And um, maybe you disagree with that. Maybe you don't think that's true. Let's talk about it. Let's have that discussion. 210-599-5555. Esteban is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Esteban, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think political feminism has always been overhyped. I knew some strong women. Uh, 
over half the ammunition, probably 80 to 90% of the ammunition I fired at a youth camp was under female supervision. I got the, I learned to read a contour map by a woman. Mm-hmm. And one of my best bosses, if Robin Olds had seen her in action, he'd call her a sister and raise a glass of beer to her and say, yeah. you know how to kick butt and take names. You yeah. are no When you say political guy. feminism is overrated, what's political feminism? What do you mean by that? It's the liberal activism. It's the whole abortion, all this woman's rights stuff. I mean, I, I love... It's... The, it's I've seen women who, I want to be with, I want to play with the boys. The second they play with the boys and they get judged according to a standard of leadership that I would hold a man to, they go, you can't do that, you're a misogynist. Okay, well, so if somebody does that, you're right. They've just given away that they they used the label, but then, you know, they're, they're, they're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. But I think you would also agree there are women in every field, in every area, that are willing to take their licks and uh, and and want to be judged the same way, want just just want to show they can do it. So I agree with you on that, Esteban. But I I, I don't want to say that's true of all people that use the word feminism or feminist. It, it, it isn't. And again, I had some of the same experiences you did. Um, I just want to know why. You are selling out on Kamala Harris. You are selling out on women's athletes. You are selling out on sports. You are selling out on things like The View. The View looks like a guy's idea of how women are when they talk. Some some misogynist, backwards, comb-over guy's idea of, oh, when the broads get together, <laughs> this is how it this is how it sounds. This is what it's like. It's embarrassing. How can you not be embarrassed? They're morons. It's like they found the five stupidest celebrities. I'm sorry, but it, it, they just, you know. And there's stupidity all over the political spectrum. I mean, Sarah Palin is dumb as a rock. I, I get it. But I, I guess I just wonder why people that for decades told us we demand the chance to show that we can do it, are now settling for the illusion of it, not the reality of it. And I, you know, I, I'm not naive about this stuff. Like the Katanji Brown Jackson thing, I'll bet a lot of feminists cringed when Biden put it the way he did. They wanted the same outcome, but they didn't want him to say, I will only consider an African American woman. It's much more powerful. If you say, I'm considering everybody and anybody, and then that's who you put forward. But I can see where in that case they were like, well, you know, we, we, this is the result we want, so we'll take it. And the Supreme Court itself is this, it's this place now where, if, and I don't want to go on a tangent here, but if you, if you listen to these hearings, it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court is now like, um, this is where conservatives and liberals go to fight in between elections. Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings are like the between-election election campaigns. These senators, to me, look like they're getting ready to all run for president. They're pandering to their base, both sides. They're pandering to their base. You know, I, I, I don't like critical race theory. 
I don't like some of the things Katanji Brown Jackson has done in the past, but I also don't think she's some sort of closet sympathizer with child pornographers. That's just, you know, and people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, they should know better. They do know better. But this is what confirmation hearings have become. They've become a, a proxy battle, right, to show, to sort of show the colors, the, the flags of each, uh, of each team. And um, so I understand that they weren't going to reject feminism, wasn't going to reject the nomination of Judge Jackson. But uh, identity politics is destroying merit. It's destroying the central tenet of feminism, which was that we have the merit. You just got to let us into the boardroom. You got to let us up to the table. You've got to let us up to the microphone. You've got to let us uh, hold the position. And then we will we will demonstrate that we have merit that we're, we're you've been holding down these super qualified people when you put forward people under any other guise that merit argument gets hollowed out gets 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 frayed I think that's what's happening now that's what that's really what Kate Herzl was writing about in the letter that I wrote yesterday or read yesterday and she's going to be on our show tomorrow by the way. You know, she talked about how proud she is to be uh, of being a woman. But she said what made her the woman she is, it was the chance to go to um, to compete in girls' sports where she learned, you know, skills, life skills, and values. By the way, athletics do that for both boys and girls. It's, it's not about the sport. It's about the values you pick up along the way. Most people don't grow up to play the sport professionally, but many people who play sports in school grow up to embody and evince the virtues they learned from that first coach or those early morning practices or whatever it might be. That's the real value of it, right? We don't, we don't need a gazillion football players every year, but we need young men to learn the things they learn playing football. We don't need a gazillion, uh, you know, women tennis players or, or track uh, and field runners uh, every year, but we need them to learn the skills that they learn. So she talked about that, and then she talked about the scholarships that led her to, and then the college that led her to, and then the activities where she found her voice and her confidence and her place in the world. And she says, now, if you're going to let boys join all these things, boys that claim to be or identify as girls, you are destroying all these emplacements that I had. Why are you doing that? And it's easy to understand why politicians are trying to pull this off. It's kind of a twofer, right? It makes them look tolerant and good, but it also helps them pander to other groups. The trans community is a group they're pandering to. The LGBTQ community, a larger community they're pandering to. But what's, what's, what I, so I, I get the politicians. I know why they're doing it. I'm not surprised. None of us are. Surprised by the feminists. 210 599 5555 or jack at ktsa.com. So, one month in to this fight in Ukraine, and you know, I there's so much news every day, it's hard to even wrap your head around everything that's happening. And I, I don't profess to have stayed on top of every <clears throat> development, but it looks to me like this is going to go on for quite a long time, doesn't it? I mean, it looks to me like we're not going to have a winner 
for a long time and maybe not clear winner uh, ever. It looks to me like this probably will be declared over rather than end. So what do you think is going to um, happen with this war between Ukraine and Russia? Does it end with Russia winning? Does it end with Ukraine winning? Does it end with some sort of declared both sides get something out of it thing, mediated partition of Ukraine? Does it end with a stalemate? Does it end with the Russians being stuck there trying to tamp down pockets of resistance, kind of like their experience in Afghanistan? You know, they declared victory, and people forget this now, but when they invaded Afghanistan, which was 1979, they declared victory pretty quickly, and then they were there for several years, and it became clear to the whole world they had not won. And when they left, they clearly did not leave as winners. And you wonder if that's what's going to happen here. Jeff is on at 210-599-5555 on KTSA. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jack. I think you're right. Um, I think in the end both sides are going to define winning different ways and claim they did. Um, but I'm, I'm going to be curious, a month or so after that, uh, we start hearing more and more references to the military-industrial complex from Eisenhower's time, and people start to ask, are, are we spending tons and tons of money to defend ourselves against an enemy that clearly is not near as good as they've been making it out to be? Um, we're watching Alabama play East Central, and we think the game will be over five minutes into the first quarter, and we're in the middle of the fourth quarter, and it's a two-point game. Um, is, is Russia really that good, and do we really need to spend the money we're spending to defend against them when Ukraine seems to be holding their own fairly well? You know, put quotations around that, but I don't... Well, I don't think we're spending all that money for Russia, Jeff. I think we're spending all that money for China. Well, it... it it would raise to me the same question. The same people are looking at Russia are looking at China, and if they misjudged Russians' mm-hmm. capabilities... Mm-hmm. Are they overestimating China, too, what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're both I, I think you would agree. You, you would agree with, I think, these two statements. We spend unbelievable amounts of money on our military, and we have a formidable military. I mean, nobody's going to doubt that we, we do have the finest, the best of everything, right? Correct. The only thing we don't have is um, resolve. All that Joe Biden has done since this crisis began, and all he did in Afghanistan, was say the things we would not do. He, 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 he made declarations of non-action. We won't fight a ground war in Ukraine. We won't put planes in the air. We won't do this. We won't do that. We won't get. We won't. T- we won't keep Bagram Air Base, which we built, which is a multi-million-dollar taxpayer investment, which we've handed over. In other words, you you can't lead by constantly telling people what you won't do. If you have this military, people have to be afraid you're going to use it. That's never been a thing for Joe Biden, right? Not for one minute has anyone in the world worried that he might use it. I, I would agree, but I would also say that the, the the step that starts you down the slippery slope, especially when we're talking about 
military actions and confrontations is the first time an American military person engages a Russian person, um, then things start to unravel, then things start to slip out of both their control and ours, um, start to... Politics. Well, how do we know that? How do you know that's true? Yeah, I know people say that all the time. They say it like it's like everyone should know it, like the science is settled. How, how do we know that? That's never happened. And I, you just think, said at the beginning of your call that a lot of our assumptions about Russia have turned out to not be true. Well, the the reason I would be concerned is, is one, the other side basically has just one person to make the decision. And from everything I read, saving faith, is, is high on his to-do list mm-hmm. um and on our i just side, wouldn't be jeff i i liked it better when you were when you were saying let's not let's be honest about what we don't know i don't like it when we start saying well we know putin will do if we do x we know putin will do y that's exactly the kind of thinking that's locked us up and 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 look when you say as the president did in december there is no chance that u.s military uh, power will be brought to bear on this You've just taken off the table any leverage, any concern. They don't have to wonder or worry like they did with Reagan. They never knew what he would do next. They, they thought he was a cowboy. They, there has to be some of that. I don't want a war, but if you're going to build, wouldn't you agree if we're going to build up this military and spend all this money, we can't keep declaring that we will never use it? I, I agree completely. And, and that's what I think was the fault in Vietnam is that we were afraid to use we were afraid to win because winning would take us doing things militarily that our politicians did not think they could sell here in the U.S. I mean, I think we wanted to deter Russia, right? We, we, what we wanted was that they didn't go in in the first place. But you don't have deterrence if you keep telling them, we will not fight you. Correct. And I would agree. Him him saying at the beginning, here's my toolbox, but these tools I am never, ever going to use, was was bad negotiating. But I, I grew up in a military family, and the most ardent, uh, nonviolent people are military people, because mm-hmm. they know the mm-hmm. ones that are going to fight them thing. Mm-hmm. Once there is video evidence that an American and a Russian fought each other, mm-hmm. to the death or not, I think mm-hmm. the pressure on the side that appears to have lost, mm-hmm. the one whose plane did get shot down, I think the mm-hmm. pressure is going to be, and okay. we got to make up it. We can't stand okay. for this. I hear you. I understand what you're saying, I, and, I, and you're right. I mean, that that is something that through the entire history of the Cold War we didn't actually deal with, and and everybody wonders what it would be. And uh, no, it's a, it's a good point. Jeff, i got to hold you there, but I appreciate the call, and, and I, I think you make some great observations about this um, but i want to talk more about why we're in this point we're this place that we're in um and we don't even have to agree on what we should do you may be like hey i don't want to go there i don't want to do this or you may be like i'm embarrassed that we haven't done more and why aren't we but but either way the point remains the same you can't have deterrence if you keep declaring you don't have any will and it is a waste of money the military is a waste of money if you keep declaring you will never use it. The possibility of your using it is everything. We're talking about a couple of things here. We've been talking about 
uh, feminism selling out to identity politics. We've been talking about why we're uh, where we're at or why the world is watching Russia and Ukraine where they're at a month into this thing. You know, like uh, like Jeff said last hour, this was supposed to be a, a, a lopsided thing. It was supposed to be over very quickly. It has surprised the hell out of a lot of people that the Ukrainians have stood up as long as they have, have resisted as much as they have, have frustrated the Russian war machine as much as they have. And it's surprised people also that Russia hasn't been more overwhelming or dominant. Um, sometimes when that happens, you've miscalculated one side or the other, and sometimes you've miscalculated both sides. But both sides are also watching us. I mean, everything Russia has done, I believe, has been gated, keyed to what they think we will do. It isn't just about what Ukraine lets them do or stops them from doing. Part of what governs Putin or governs China or governs any of our geopolitical adversaries is what they think we will do. And this goes beyond what you and I think we should do. This goes to the question of why are we maintaining the most powerful, most advanced military the world has ever known if the the commander-in-chief of that military keeps withholding even the possibility of its use. Don't get me wrong. I'm not an interventionist. I'm not a warmonger. I'm, I'm I'm a... I'm of the school of thought back when we were founded as a country. I believe it was John Adams, one of the founders, and I think it was John Adams, was speaking against the idea of a standing army because we had an all-volunteer, you know, militia-based army. We didn't have a professional army. We didn't have a standing army. And he said um, that he feared if we had a standing army, a professional army, it would tempt presidents to go abroad looking for dragons to slay. In other words, if you have it, the temptation will be too great to constantly use it and find ways to use it. Because we don't want that. And Eisenhower echoed that in his famous military-industrial speech, the idea being if we keep spending money and this becomes the means of enriching oneself, then we will have endless war. And it does look like, in many ways, we've slipped into the the pattern Eisenhower warned about. We've had more war than non-war these last 50 or 60 years. Here's my point. I believe in a strong military, and I think the world is better off when America leads it. I I really believe that. I think people's lives... We're not perfect, we're not saints, but by and large, if you look at world history in the last 100 years, when we've been strong and confident... It's been better for most people in most parts of the world. And when we haven't been, when we've had leaders that were feckless and weak, things things get worse for people far, far away from us. Not just for us, but for other people. So the world's better off when we're strong and we're confident. So the president, since the crisis with Ukraine has begun has only defined what he would not do, what we would not do, the things that will not happen. And that gives that's given Putin a a free field. 
But there's something else going on here that I think is confusing for people, and I hear it from callers and emailers all the time. They're trying to figure out which Ukraine are we talking about here. Because the Ukraine of today is a heroic nation of brave fighters led by this Churchillian president, Zelensky. But over the last several years, the depiction of Ukraine in our media has been that it's a corrupt corruptocracy, right? That it's a corrupt country riddled with oligarchs and paid-off politicians that none of the recent presidents of Ukraine, including the current one, are legit. Candace Owens got into some trouble recently. She said some things that were skeptical. I think she was on with Tucker Carlson. She said some things that were pretty skeptical of this whole deal. Um, and the New York Times reached out to her and said, hey, we want to interview you because you've got some, you've got some pretty uh, out there things you're saying. You're, in fact, they accused her in the email. She published the email she received from the New York Times. And the New York Times reporter said to Candace Owens, in essence, you, you seem to um, be parroting Russian propaganda about Ukraine. So she responded to them by uh, sending them a bunch of links and articles to their own coverage of Ukraine. She said, where did I learn about Ukraine? I learned about it from you. You're the ones who've educated me that Ukraine is struggling with a legacy of corruption and Ukraine's military is corrupt and Ukraine's presidencies have been corrupt. I learned it from you, New York Times. And so I think people are wondering, well, what's the deal? Which Ukraine are we supposed to care about and, and, and feel for? And we do feel for them. I mean, look, you look at these people that are fighting and suffering and having their homes destroyed and they're in the street and there's bombs falling. That's real, and that's, it's, it's only human nature to, to feel for that. You look at the way they've resisted the Russians. That's not, there's, there's nothing but admiration for that. I think what happened was there's a difference between the politicians of a country and the people of the country. And we do this a lot. We conflate the two. We think that a government is the country. We think our government is our country. The only time we're sure that's not true is when our government is the one we didn't elect, the one we didn't vote for. Then you've got crystal clarity that, oh, there's a difference between the politicians and the people. You know it when it's the people you didn't vote for. But with many other countries, we forget that there's the, the government, there's the thin crust at the top, but then there's the people. Yes, Ukraine's governments have been infamously corrupt. The New York Times was not wrong about that. But the people have shown you who they are. They're not their government. And um, people are trying to make sense of this. They need it explained to them. This is something a president, a leader, should be explaining. You've told us for years, massive corruption horrible people we can't trust it was so bad that the the phone call with trump became an impeachable offense this is how you were talking about ukraine and not lo- this isn't long ago the the impeachment of donald trump was 2019 into 2020 
But now the narrative is totally the opposite. No wonder people are trying to figure out well, what should we be doing or should we be doing anything. Joining us now in our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, Steve Moore, former Wall Street Journal editorial board member, former economic advisor to President Trump, and uh, kind of our go-to guy for all things economics. And Steve Moore, good afternoon to you. Hey, Jack, good to be with you. Um, there's an idea kicking around that's a to me, I think a terrible idea, but it's the kind of idea I can imagine politicians would love. And that is that the response to high gas prices would be to send out gas vouchers to people. I mean, they have the model, right? We did this, we did this for COVID and it would give them a chance to send every uh, family something with their name on it that says, here's our gift to you. We care. Is that going to happen? Do you think that could possibly happen? I wouldn't rule out anything with this Congress, the crazy things that we've been spending money on. But look, it, it, it's a, it's a, even if they do it, it's a Band-Aid on the problem, which is that people are paying so much more for gasoline. I, I mean, I paid four seventy nine a gallon in Maryland uh, last, uh, last uh, night. And so these gas prices are just killing the American consumer. Inflation is now, Jack, up to about... Almost 10% when you look at the producer prices, which, as you know, filter down into higher consumer prices. So this is quite a crisis in the making. It is not temporary. It is not uh, transitory. It is not good for you. And it's not uh, something that's going away on its own. So uh, I think the Fed took some important action yesterday. But that, too, was like a day late and a dollar short. Well, I mean, you you have to wonder, and I I don't want to drag you into my fever swamp of conspiracy <laughs> theories but right. you know when you have politicians that see higher gas prices as opportunistic rather than critical right. or a crisis you 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 expect band-aids and gestures and and words rather than actions so i'm i'm not expecting them to do any of the substantive meat and potatoes right. things they could do but the voucher well, thing yeah. f- has that feel of empathy that is very 2022 yeah. you know I feel your pain, but the pain that they created. Here's the point. You know, look, Biden came in. He declared war on American energy. He he basically said he wanted to bankrupt. He and his minions said they wanted to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. They said that they wanted to uh, force Americans off of uh, uh, fossil fuels by producing less. By the way, that policy never made any sense to me, why it makes more sense for America to be buying oil and gas from uh, from Russia and Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, rather than getting it in Texas and Alaska and Oklahoma and North Dakota. And, you know, the, the, the left is talking out of both sides of their mouth on this. On the one hand, they say, oh, we're doing everything we can to bring gas prices down. On the other hand, they hate the oil and gas industry. They don't want mm-hmm. to pe- have people use oil and gas. Now, Jack, if you don't want to have someone, if you want to uh, have people stop using something, then you raise its price. Right. <laughs> so they should be celebrating. You know, come on, be honest, liberals. If you want, if you want to uh, get well, some of them are. I mean, some of them are. Say, I mean, Pete Buttigieg is just saying, get go get an electric car. Don't yeah, don't expect us to do anything about gas prices. That was, yeah, that was insulting. I mean, first of all, get get in touch with real America, Pete Buttigieg. How many Americans can can afford seventy five thousand yeah. dollars for a Tesla? Second of all, do you know what percentage of cars on the road today, Jack, use? Um, are electric vehicles? It's got to be like one percent or something, right? Well, uh, no, it's up to about two and a half percent. Two and a half. Okay. Percent. Yeah. But so no, that that is not an answer for most people, obviously. 
Yeah, right, exactly. If my math is right, that means 97% of us are still filling up our gas tanks with with gasoline. You can tell I'm frustrated because this wasn't the result of what happened in Russia. Now, what happened in Russia made it worse, but this was preordained. This was the Biden policy of destroy the oil and gas industry. We haven't just, by the way, we haven't destroyed the oil and gas industry in Russia and Saudi Arabia and all these other countries and the OPEC countries. What we've done is is, uh, really put the pinch on our own oil and gas industry. We should be producing 15 million barrels a day um, based on what the price is today and we're at 10 and a half million so mm. that is telling you that we're doing something seriously wrong yeah i want to ask you about something else this is a term that i'm hearing more and more and learning about uh and it's the, it's the term is food security and people are pointing out steve moore that russia is the leading exporter of wheat ukraine is the fourth largest exporter of wheat nearly a third of wheat exports in the world come from one of those two countries and um in some cases in some countries almost all of their wheat comes from russia and or ukraine and so there's going to be major supply disruptions those uh crops are not getting planted or are getting destroyed what is what is the implication of that and is it as dire as people are saying people are saying weeks and months from now when the fighting war may be over the, the starvation may kick in. You know, I'm not an expert on this field, but I am re- I am very worried about it. You know, you can, when you see uh, commodity prices surging, uh, because look, the, the inflation, most of the world is, is, is connected to the dollar, right? And so when the inflation rises in the United States, it rises everywhere, right? It rises everywhere in the country. Now, a 10% inflation rate here in the United States means, you know, that you just, it pinches your wallet. It causes you financial strain, no question about it. But it's not going to cause people, most most Americans aren't going to go hungry. But around the world, yeah, yeah. if you see yeah. shortages of food, that is a world crisis. And, you know, by the way, energy is a huge part. <laughs> Anyone listening to the show who's involved in agriculture knows that energy is the major component right. of, of our, of our uh, food. So when we raise food prices here, what we're essentially doing is, is, uh, is making... Uh, I mean, energy prices, you make food prices and everything else you buy more expensive. So I don't, again, I don't understand the policy. I don't understand the logic of it. I've talked to many uh, of my liberal friends and they can't explain it either. <laughs> why, why this makes sense. Why aren't we just going all in on producing American energy right now? And think of the jobs. Think of the GDP. Think of one other thing, uh, Rick, and then I've, I've got to run because I got to, uh, I just arrived at, at my, I've got a dinner speech tonight, but, uh, you know, when we're buying oil from Russia, we're helping finance the Russian military machine. Right. I mean, that's right. immoral. That's immoral. Why right. can't we get it from Texas? Uh, you know, the biggest uh, beneficiary of Biden's energy policy is Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's well said. Steve Moore, always appreciate it. Always like to follow you on Twitter, at Stephen Moore, and hope you'll come back again soon. Good luck with the speech tonight. Okay, take care. See you, Jack. Bye. Thank you. All right, Steve Moore with us here on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I, it's a lot to think about. And it's a lot to take in, but um, we we keep we keep getting this soda straw view. It's why I like to have people like Steve Moore and, and Lisa Daftari on our show because it broadens, right? It, it gives you that widescreen take on things. We get this soda straw view. You know, the news comes on, well, today in the war, this happened and that happened, and here's a picture of a building blowing up. But And even when we talk about what's happening with our price at the pump, and it is painful, and it is real, 
the implications for this as it goes around the world are much worse. You know, you learn about this if you, if you study economics. They call it a subsistence economy. We're not a subsistence economy. But there are entire countries where if the price of food or energy goes up just a little, people are destroyed. There's no margin. And those are not countries that can have fiat currency like we do. Oh, we'll, 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 we'll just inflate our currency. They can't do it. So while we dither and fail to deter and send all these mixed signals to Vladimir Putin and to China, um, it has real implications for people, like life and death implications for people other parts of the world. We can say that war is in our war, that fight is in our fight. I get that thinking. I respect that point of view. I don't share it, but I understand it. But then it turns out it's really, it's really kind of everything is sort of rippling into everything else, and and we're not going to be able to cut this thing off and say, well, that's over there, and that's between those two, and let them deal with it, or, you know, let, let, it, let it run its course. It all comes back. And, um, you know, we've, we had a lot of focus, right, in 2020 and 2021. All of a sudden, you were hearing supply chain, like that was a new thing. That's, a, that's been around forever, but all of a sudden, it was on everybody's lips. And the reason it was is because we learned it was more fragile and susceptible to events than we thought it was. We were running out of things that in our lifetime we had never run out of. And um, I think we're heading for, over the course of this year and next year, some of that same thing with what they call food security. And again, the supply chain. So um, this happened in Norco, California, which is a little town near Riverside in Los Angeles. Um, uh, and it happened in a, um, uh, a, a kind of, a, I guess, a, a kindergarten, pre, pre-K and kindergarten uh, classroom. And it made the local news. This is the local station, KTLA's report. Take a listen to this. The teacher posted this video, and she sent it to their parents. Glennon Lewis it happened to be President's Day, but exactly what they were learning is unclear. But the, the teacher posted this video, and she sent it to their parents. Who's our president? What do we want to do with him? These are four and five-year-olds in transitional kindergarten at Turning Point Christian School in Norco. Their teacher posting the video to the school's internal parent app. I couldn't believe it at first. Christina McFadden watched the video several times in horror. The teacher's indoctrinating her students. They're, you know, everybody has a right to believe in what they want, and my daughter wasn't given that opportunity. And especially at that age, I don't think she could even comprehend to make an informed decision on who, who and what she should believe in. McFadden contacted the school immediately. Their response was to take the video down, offering an apology, as it did not share with the school and church philosophy of honoring and respecting authority, including those in government positions. McFadden was told the teacher was talked to. I still don't know what the lesson was, even though I've asked. They said they've spoken with her and reviewed it, and they are okay with it. McFadden even asked her five-year-old what went on in class. I just kind of sat down and let her watch it, and she just thought it was so funny, and look at mommy, look at what we learned today, and she just kept repeating that we want him out. Her daughter has since switched schools, and McFadden is hoping this serves as a lesson to parents to be informed. 
At this point, it's not about the school. It's about informing parents that this is happening. And currently, there is no nothing in place to stop it from happening. So I'm hoping that with enough attention, it'll invoke change to make, because currently there's no standards, guidelines that preschools have to follow. I spoke with the school administrator this morning. They are not going to issue a statement and have no comment. All right, so this is like the mirror image, right, or the the other side of a story we've heard over and over and over again, right, where um, parents are outraged to discover that there is indoctrination going on instead of education. Let me just say at the, at the outset, um, I want Biden out of there too, but that, that had no place in the classroom. That's not what you do with four- and five-year-olds. That's just dumb, okay, and out of place. H- having said that, though, it's, it's almost funny to hear liberal parents or parents that are sympathetic to Joe Biden suddenly realize that a classroom is a captive audience that children are susceptible to when you expose an adult to your opinion they may like it or not like it but it kind of bounces off of them when you expose children to an opinion they absorb it like fact so an opinion about joe biden is the equivalent of a fact about joe biden joe biden is the president is a fact joe biden should not be president is an opinion to kids it's the same thing But welcome to our world. (laughs) Welcome to the fight against critical race theory. Welcome to the fight against the indoctrination of kids, not only in current events discussions, but in every freaking classroom they go in and out of all day long. In in many public schools, you can't get away from it if you go to PE. You can't get away from it if you go to study hall. You can't go get away from it if you go to the library. So yes, I'm, I believe you're, you should not have, you should be able to opt in and opt out of things with your kids. You should be in control of what they learn and how they learn it. But here was the other side of that. She is shocked that people are dissing President Biden. I wonder how many of these discussions took place in the preceding four years at every grade level. Much more graphically and blatantly about President Trump. Well, the more people that we wake up, the better, however we wake them up. That's what I say. Tell me what you think, 210-599-5555. Uh, there's a school district in Colorado, Cherry Creek, that has announced there will be no more valedictorians when uh, they have graduation. This is a big thing now. I don't know if you've had this happen where your kids go to school or or uh, or went to school but they're doing away with valedictorians in a lot of places and uh class rank and honors and honor rolls and things like that anyway the letter they sent home is interesting in the letter to cherry creek parents it says the practices of class rank and valedictorian status are outdated and inconsistent with what we know and believe of our students. We believe all students can learn at high levels, and learning is not a competition. It may be possible that all students can learn at high levels, but it's not true that they all do. It may be possible for all students to do their homework every night, but not all of them do. 
It may be possible for students to apply themselves or excel or do extra credit, raise their GPA, but not all of them do. Valedictorians tend to be people that have made a decision. They tend to be part of families that have made a decision about the value of education. And it is a competition. But it's not just a competition between kiddos, which wouldn't be bad, although they seem to think it's the worst thing imaginable. When your child is pushing him or herself to get better grades, to get on the honor roll, to have high class rank, or to be the number one in the class, when they are pushing themselves and you're pushing them to get into a better school, that's not competition with the other students. That's competition against the world. That's competition against mediocrity. Mediocrity is taking over. I don't know if you've noticed. I think you probably have. Mediocrity is becoming the new normal, and now mediocrity is becoming the new excellence. And mediocrity is a cop-out for people who are in the education business. Now, don't get your back up if you're a teacher. I'm not saying this is necessarily true of you. But there are people in your profession who have decided that it would be easier to not have grades and ranks and honors and valedictorians because then you wouldn't have to explain your results. And since you may not be getting very good results, it's always nice when you don't have to explain them, right? If, if the crime rate goes up, one solution to that is to stop reporting the crime statistics. If educational mediocrity is on the rise, one solution to that is to stop doing report cards or having letter grades or having ranks or having valedictorians. They'll say they're doing it to be nice, but I don't think there's anything crueler than stomping on excellence and sending the message that everybody's the same. Everybody's the same. I think that's the cruelest thing of all. I really do. I, I don't I I feel for kids that struggle. I feel for families that struggle. I feel for kids that are trapped in low performing or low uh uh you know low school districts. But there isn't anything worse than just saying, ah, chuck it. <laughs> what was the line again in the letter? All students can learn at high levels, and learning is not a competition. That doesn't address what is happening. That doesn't address whether or not they're doing their job as a school and as educators. It just says, well, anything's possible. Nice. What do you think about that? Is it just me or is that? I mean, this is the race to the bottom. 210-599-5555. By the way, you want to worry about other countries and our competition with them or our engagement with them? They're not doing this. We're the only ones doing this, just so you know. Uh, 210-599-5555. We were talking about uh, everything from feminism, selling out to identity politics, to Ukraine and Russia. One month in, what's your uh, prediction on this war? Where do you think this is all headed? Uh, we were talking about the uh, race to the bottom, the war against meritocracy and merit in education. And I, I made the reference to, uh, you know, if you can't, if you can't solve crime... You can't reduce crime in a community. You could, I guess, cop out by not counting crimes, reporting crimes. Well, it turns out that may actually be happening. Um, the FBI this week released their quarterly uniform crime report. 
And I'm not going to pretend I read that or anything. But somebody noted uh, inside the many, many pages of this document the following statement. For this quarterly release, due to agency participation being under the 60% threshold, data trends by region and population group will not be available. Data from individual city agencies with populations of 100,000 or greater can be accessed in the resource section below. So what I guess this means is the FBI got insufficient data to provide national statistics on crime. Well, I don't know if that's because so many cities have cut down on policing and their budget and they're not aggregating the data and reporting it to the feds. I don't know if the feds are actually in possession of it but don't want to report it. I don't know. But that's one way to solve the problem of rising crime. Just stop reporting it. I wonder how much longer local journalists will do the whole if it bleeds, it leads style of reporting. I mean, if you keep reporting on carjackings and you keep reporting on scary you know, crimes in your town and your city, you undercut the message that we don't need police, we can defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. The, the things you believe the right, the right wing scaremonger on, well, just stop reporting on that stuff happening. You know, if it, it if there's a carjacking in San Antonio and the television stations don't report it, you don't know it, I don't know it, unless we know the person to whom it happened. Hence, it's like a tree falling in the forest. Interesting. By the way, this is almost, this sounds like, like, like satire. The new mayor of New York, you know, he's got a crime problem there. The new mayor of New York, who was elected mainly because people believed that he, Eric Adams, would be better on this uh, issue, has announced that he is meeting, I'm not making this up, with the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. They are putting their heads together to come up with ideas for tackling crime. I mean, the jokes, you make your own joke at home, right? Of all the people in America to whom you could turn, why would you turn to the mayor of a city where crime is up like 35%? But he did. I mean, what's that expression going from the frying pan into the fire? I'm not sure if Eric Adams is the frying pan or the fire or it's Lori Lightfoot, but one of them is the frying pan, the other one's the fire they've gotten together. Great choice. I mean, just excellent choice here you elect this is what i find so funny sadly humorous i guess i should say here you elect a man who was a police officer who makes a lot of sense when he talks about the crime issue as a candidate and you think finally we've got a mayor that knows this stuff right i mean bill de blasio always seemed like a guy that was kind of baked like he was like he'd he'd spent all night getting high not having meetings or looking at the problem what is this former police officer do he turns to the mayor of america's failing the the the, the, really one of the most failing cities in the country and a mayor who has no idea who is pure politics pure ideology and he's getting advice from her 
I mean, you can't write satire better than that. <laughs> Go get some ideas on reducing crime in Chicago. Let's do, I'm going to do in New York what they're doing in Chicago. Brace yourself, New York. Later in the hour, we're going to see how you voted on our JR poll question powered by Stevens Roofing. One month in, what's your prediction about the war between Ukraine and Russia? Do you think Russia will win that war eventually? Do you think Ukraine will hold out? Do you think it'll be a stalemate or sort of a everybody claims a piece of victory or their version of victory? How do you think it ends up? 210-599-5555. Of course, a lot of times in modern warfare, there's a, there's a uh, you know, remember Mission Accomplished, George Bush landing on the aircraft carrier? There's, there's a tendency in the moment to try to write history but you can only write history in in retrospectively. You know, you can only write write history after the dust has settled and time has gone by. Only then do you really have not only clarity, but there has to be a durability to your results, a durability to your outcome. So you can, in a war, you can declare victory at any moment. You can say, well, this was all we wanted, or this was our objective, or we've met our objectives. They, they, were, they were internal objectives. You just didn't know, but this was really all we wanted. We're, we're done. We're leaving. You can do that, but in time, the truth emerges. And I think about, you know, the advice that Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon both got during the Vietnam War. They Both of them, at various times, had advisors telling them the the only way out, because it was a nightmare. I mean, it it consumed them totally. And they were told, just declare victory. Well, how can I do that? We're in the middle. We're fighting. We're in the middle of fighting. Just just say that we've met our objectives and we're done. And they didn't do it. But that war ended with a peace accord, but not a victory. No one goes around saying, boy, we really licked them in Vietnam. Or the Russians in Afghanistan, the Soviets in Afghanistan. They went into Afghanistan. It was supposed to be a, a mismatch. The world was appalled. Just as they were appalled that you would go into Ukraine, Afghanistan was was much, much weaker. And um, very quickly, the Soviet Union, after the 1979 invasion, uh, declared victory. But it wasn't to be. They paid a terrible death toll. It brought down the Brezhnev and uh, the two succeeding governments. It essentially exposed the Soviets as not... 20 feet tall. And uh, they, when they did leave Afghanistan, they certainly didn't leave as, as victors. So what do you think is going to happen? 210-599-5555. We're talking about uh, what's going on um, in terms of the failure of the Biden approach. The Biden approach has always been to deter Russia and then failing that to punish Russia to raise the 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 price for invading and it hasn't worked i mean russia is having fits with ukrainian resistance they're not having fits with the biden administration putin's headache is zelensky not biden why is that well if you think about everything they've done from the beginning joe biden Tony Blinken, it's always been 
running down, listing, declaring what they would not do, what they won't do, what we are not going to do. This is off the table. This will never happen. We absolutely will not do this. We absolutely will not do that. Well, the more you whittled it down, the less uncertainty there was. And I think in their mind that was a plus. We want everybody to know exactly what we will do. But it turns out that in dealing with the Soviets, presidents from Kennedy to Reagan to even Trump dealing with the Russians, it was unpredictability. It was worry about what an American president would do that had the greatest effect. A lot of people give Reagan the credit for this, but I think Reagan learned to do it from Kennedy. If you look at the, if you study the way Kennedy managed the Cuban Missile Crisis, and again, going against the advice he was getting, going against even his closest advisors, he did not want to take things off the table. He rightly believed they should be worried about what we would do, how far we would go. Would we really have World War III over Cuba? Yeah, we would. Better not make us do it. Now, this may sound to you like I'm advocating World War III. Believe me, I'm not. I grew up with a man, my father, who fought in World War II. And he's the most influential person in my life. He's the person I've admired the most in my life. I can tell you, um, I listened to him. I, I took his lessons. I, I'm not, I don't take this lightly. I don't want World War III. But... You cannot deter or employ leverage if you keep telling people what you won't do. And why have we built this military if its commander-in-chief keeps telling the world under no circumstances will it ever be used? Why would we tell opponents and adversaries our internal discussions and considerations, which we've also done. Remember the story about how we went to China, not went to China, but we went to the, we went to the Chinese and said, here are our internal calculations and considerations. Here's our intelligence. Here's, here's the briefing book we have on Russia and Ukraine. And China gave it to Putin. Apparently, from what we're hearing. I, I guess I just, I think you have to be able to project the will. So Ukrainian people have, have shown they have the will to defend their country. I think they've bucked up their president, not the other way around. I mean, he has a lot of admirers, and I get that, but he couldn't be what he is. He couldn't be talking the way he is and... and taking the tack he's taking if the Ukrainian people weren't fighting, and they are. That's will. you got to have that, too. So you can have the most powerful military in the world, but it doesn't mean anything if the people directing it, commanding it, um, keep telling the world we will not use it. It will stay on the shelf. By the way, um, about the Ukrainian people, and I don't profess to be any kind of an expert about this, and you may have a different take on it. When people say, wow, I can't believe, it's just incredible the way, 
isn't that because of a, of a word that we've decided in this country is a dirty word or a backwards idea? Isn't this nationalism in action? In other words, yes, they're, they're asking the world to help them, but they didn't wait for the world to help them. They didn't sit in their homes and go, boy, I sure hope the U.N. gets here soon. I sure hope NATO gets here soon. They went out and they fought, and they're fighting. And, uh, and they were doing that before we got any aid over there. So this is what nationalism actually looks like when your country is up, you know, against the ropes, up, backed into a corner. If you really believe it's an exceptional place, if you really believe there isn't any other place you'd want to live, this is, you know, this is your dirt. These are your brothers and sisters. If that's what you believe, that's nationalism. It gets bent and shaped into other things. It gets equated with being a racist or being this or being that. I, I, I don't care about how they want to misuse the word. They're using it the right way. If you believe in a world order and a much bigger country invades you, then you wait for the world order to, you know, resolve it. If you believe in your own country and you believe in, in, in your brothers and sisters to the left of you and the right of you, then you fight like hell. Just in case that world order isn't all it's cracked up to be, which, as it turns out, once again, it isn't. Speaking of... uh of the facts. Uh, we were talking earlier about um, how people are trying to figure out the whole narrative of Russia and Ukraine. I don't think there's any confusion about who and what Putin is, but I think people are genuinely confused about Ukraine because now everything about that country, even its flag, is held up as if it was um, almost a, you know, a, a religious symbol or a, uh, a an avatar of of everything that's good and decent. And there's no question that the people of Ukraine have shown a lot of decency and, and courage. But it wasn't that long ago, i.e., last year, <laughs> that all the news coverage in this country about Ukraine was about the corruption of their government. And by the way, that's not untrue. But no one thought it was important. The Biden administration, the president, the messaging around them, the all of these geniuses that do national security reporting for the networks and the newspapers, no one thought it would be important or it was important to say, well, we need to explain why a country that's so corrupt that President Trump's phone call with its president might be an impeachable offense. We need to explain why now that same country, by the way, that same government is Churchillian and our brothers in arms. And I'll tell you what I, what I think that re represents to me. That represents to me a total dismissal of you. You're not smart enough. You're not worth explaining it. You wouldn't get it. They just don't care. They say whatever needs to be said. So it was important while Trump was president to represent Ukraine as a corrupt 
state and any dealings in Ukraine except Hunter Biden's were suspect. Now, hashtag, you know, donate to Ukraine. And I get that part of that is there's a difference between a country's government and a country's people. Like, you would not want uh, people in other countries to equate you and your values with, well, really any politician, right? I don't care if it's Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell or who, right? You say, well, they're the politicians. We're the people. You want to get to know the American people. You want to know what we're made of. You want to know what's important to us. We're That's us. Politicians are just this necessary evil that we have, this thin upper crust that we have at the top. And so I think what's part of the confusion is there is a difference between a country that has a corrupt government, but a people that are pretty made of pretty stern stuff, which they appear to be. But I do think we... I think we're being sold a bill of goods here. And what I mean by that is um, you're, you're being encouraged to see this in very simple terms. It also, by the way, I think, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but I, I, I think they are making out the Ukrainian resistance to be something more than it is. And I'm not taking anything away from them. But look, if if you threw everything at them, it would be a bloodbath. Putin's not doing that. But I, I hope we're not building people's hopes up or expectations up for something that isn't going to happen. I mean, I think the best outcome, frankly, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, I think the best outcome in Ukraine is sort of like what happened to the Russians in Afghanistan. They wrought a lot of damage and death and took tremendous casualties. And they had to leave because it became politically unsustainable for them. But that was certainly not a victory for the Afghan people. They weren't having parades. And uh, it, it just... it. This is what leaders should do. They should be shading this and coloring this in and filling this in. They're talking about it in the most simplistic terms. And it's a disservice. And it confuses people for the reason I cited and probably many others. 210-599-5555. And again, I guess i got to also ask the question, what are we doing with this massive military investment if we are telegraphing that it will not be used. I know why we built it. You know why we built it. And we didn't build it for Ukraine. But I think part of the value of it would be its deterrent effect. You know, if you're going to try to deter them with banking sanctions, you've got something even better. Only you don't have it now because you've promised them you wouldn't use it. Hector is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hector, good evening. Hey, how are you, Jack? You know, what people forget is that in the beginning of this war, our president gave their president, Zelensky, a free ticket out of there, but he refused it. And people, Mm -hmm. I think, forget that, Mm -hmm. that he Mm -hmm. didn't give him an out to leave the country. Mm -hmm. He chose not to. It kind of says a lot about our president. Well, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, it does. I guess we know what he would do if the chips were down. But um, what, what do you think is, I mean, do you think the people have emboldened Zelensky? In other words, when everybody talks about his bravery, I think he's getting it from his own people. Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. He, he's, he's made a commitment to them, and they made a commitment to him. But I, I mean, I think that I think theirs to him came first. I don't think he could be where he is today if they were not fighting the way they are. In fact, I don't even know if he'd be alive if they weren't fighting the way they are. And and so I think that's why people get confused about well, is this a government we should support or not? The answer is this is a this is a government with a lot of shady dealings. But these are people that are that are true blue. They believe in their country. That's true. I agree with that. Yeah. Hector, thank you for the call. Um, and, and, and I don't think they're the only ones. This is actually what most people in most countries historically would do. But we live in a, in an age, basically the last, you know, 75 years or so, where there's this globalist thinking, this, you know, new world order thinking. And now we've, we've brought up generations of people across many different countries and nationalities and regions. We've brought them up to believe that fighting with sticks and stones and resisting invaders and is primitive. It's knuckle dragging. You don't, you don't want to do that. You want to wait for the Security Council to have a meeting. You want to wait for sanctions. You want to wait for a, a strongly worded condemnation of the invaders. And um, here we are in 2022, and here are people saying, "You know what? I think the, I don't think we better wait for help. <laughs> I don't think we I don't think we can. We want help. We're gonna we're gonna ask for it, but I don't think we can wait for help. That's what they've done. And um, that also, by the way, makes them less attractive. We talked about this yesterday. These Ukrainian refugees, and there's going to be more of them, obviously." Um, they're less attractive to American politicians to let into this country. They've already indicated they may not be made of the of the kind of stuff that would cause them to be instant Democratic Party voters. You know, they. I'm not saying they wouldn't be or couldn't be, but they look like they wouldn't be as easy to make assumptions about as as other groups that the Democrats have waved in. Governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time. Is there any significance to the passage of time? I've always wondered. <laughs> there she is, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's easy to it's easy to poke fun, and even even liberal comedians are starting to, you know, ding on Kamala Harris a little bit. But here's the thing: 
when I look at her, what I see, first of all, I don't see a, a dummy because I don't think she's a dummy. I, I, I've known people like Kamala Harris my whole life. They're not stupid. They just have an exaggerated sense of their intelligence. Like, I, I think you have to know your limitations. You have to know how smart you are. That might be even more important than being smart, knowing what you know and what you don't know, right? And I think she believes and perhaps has been told that she's exceptional. So she doesn't do her homework. You know, all these people that have quit her staff are all telling pretty much the same story. Doesn't prep, doesn't take briefings, doesn't read the briefing book, wings it in meetings, wings it in speeches and news conferences. And and that's what it sounds like. It sounds like somebody that, that is vomiting up a word salad to fill time because there's no preparation. And that's not stupid. That's just overconfident. But... But what I also see in Kamala Harris is the is sort of the fruition of identity politics. She is where she is, not to advance her or advance girls and women who look like her. She's there to advance Joe Biden, and, and she did. Mission accomplished. And feminism used to be about the idea that if you give women just access if they can just come to the meeting, come to the table, try out for the job or team or whatever it is, if you, if you just give them a chance to compete with the men, they will equal or best the men. That was the, that was the war cry of feminism. And I heard it all my life because I grew up in a very liberal, pro-feminist part of the country. And you don't even want to meet my sister. You, I mean, <laughs> okay, so s- strength confidence will show you that has morphed or sold out to identity politics so Kamala Harris isn't vice president because she was the most qualified person in the country to be vice president she's vice president because Joe Biden needed to check some boxes he needed to offset his political liabilities he needed a virtue signal to a part of his party that was shaky on him. We all know that's true. And it makes a mockery of feminism. It makes a mockery of the actual struggle for women and girls to get, you know, just to get a seat at the table, to get a chance. Just let me get to the starting line. I want to run the race. That's what they used to say. You look at Judge Jackson. She is a very qualified person. Seems very smart. But rather than saying we looked at everybody and we picked her, which would have been a great compliment to her, Biden had to make sure you knew that he was only going to consider African-American women. So that draws her out of a much smaller pool and it diminishes, it, it, it reduces her to an identity politics avatar or symbol. Promise kept. Check the box. And th- this is what we're doing. And I, I just I marvel at it because I, I did not expect feminism to cave to identity politics, just as I, I, I marvel that advocates for girls and women's sports are caving to the identity politics cop-out of trans athletes. I mean... Trans athletes are a real thing. Trans people are real. I, I get that. But there is no even lip service paid 
to what women's sports mean to women and girls' sports mean to girls. It's pretty pathetic when you got an old white guy like me on the radio having to say this, but who else is saying it? I don't know. I don't hear anybody else saying it. I would gladly take a back seat to a woman saying it, but I, I, you very seldom hear it. We're going to have one of those women on the show tomorrow, though, and I'm excited to get her on because we, we uh, read part of her uh, recent column about this. Her name is Kate Herzl, um, and she wrote a uh, piece at campusreform.org uh, entitled Women's Opportunities Are Being Taken Away by Women, W-O-M-X-N. She's going to be with us tomorrow afternoon talk more about that. And um, her point was, you know, she kind of tells her story, and she says, you know, I am the beneficiary of everything from playing, uh, you know, doing girls track and field in high school to scholarships for women to attending a, a women's college to belonging to women's professional groups and groups that, that um, promoted and uh, encouraged professional development among women. These are all things that, that helped me and mattered to me, and I am where I am today because of them. And now I see them being um, erased. Why would you do that? See, there's too many people that have benefited in just the way that she did, but they're not, it's not now that they've made it, they're, they're not worried about what happens from here on out. Th- that's sort of like once you get into the lifeboat, you're not interested in pulling anybody else into the lifeboat. Well, she is interested in pulling more girls into that lifeboat. So we'll talk to her tomorrow. I posted this on Facebook, and I, I guess it's, I thought it was funny. There were people that actually thought it was kind of sad. Um, when they saw it. So it's about a, a man in Japan who's known as the do-nothing guy. There is an industry in Japan where you can rent a stranger to play the part of an acquaintance you don't actually have. Uh, Shoji Morimoto, 38, uh, markets himself as someone who can be there for whatever social expectations you're facing. His nickname, Rental Son, has inspired a television series, books, n- numerous articles. He cheered at the end of a marathon finish line for a client who wanted to run a race but didn't have anybody to cheer them on. Uh, a man hired him to sit with him while he finished his thesis so that he wouldn't slack off. Numerous healthcare workers during the pandemic hired him to just listen to them vent about what they were going through. He gets about $85 an hour in U.S. currency and has been in all kinds of different social situations. He's accompanied people to funerals, weddings. One woman hired him to accompany her as she filed her divorce papers he's been with people who were undergoing surgery he says that his clients are sometimes people that don't have anyone and other times are just not wanting to burden the people they do have with their own needs and problems and i thought it was kind of funny and and also kind of wistful i mean he's not a victim you shouldn't feel sorry for him he's made a lot of money this is what he wants to do nobody made him do it um, 
But it does kind of say something about uh, how a society that's more and more connected is also more and more lonely. Imagine it's an industry. There's such a need for it. I mean, if he was just the only guy doing it, why even bother, right? But this is an industry. And I'll bet it's an industry that you could do here, too. You know, I mean, I I don't know if it would work exactly the same way, but they call him the do-nothing guy, but he's actually doing something that it turns out we really need and just didn't didn't realize it. On the JR Poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, one month in, what's your war prediction? Will it be Russia wins? Will it be Ukraine wins? Will it be no one wins? There's a stalemate. Stalemate was the winner. Uh, 61% think this will end not with a bang, but a whimper. Just kind of peter out or declare it stalemate, declare it settlement. Divide the country, 61%. 31% predict that Russia will win this war. 8% predict that Ukraine will be the winner when it's all said and done. New JR poll question tomorrow. We get started on the radio at 4, but you can find the question anytime. You can find our show anytime at KTSA.com. It's a funny meme. Uh, (laughs) can relate to this. It says, y'all better enjoy your 20s, 30s, and 40s, because in your 50s, the check engine light is going to come on. That's your, your check engine light. I'm driving everywhere I go with my check engine light on, if you know what I mean. All right. Um, you remember we've talked about this before, the 1619 Project. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, an associate editor at the New York Times, the 1619 Project is her baby. It's the premise that American history didn't begin in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. It began in 1619 with the first importation of African slaves to the North American continent. And that's our history. It's a a history steeped in and literally that began with slavery. So she was uh, tweeting out over the weekend the following. She's, again, I, I have no other better, more polite way of putting it. I think she's crazy. Okay. She wrote, tipping is a legacy of slavery. And if it's not optional, then it shouldn't be a tip, but simply included in the bill. Have you ever stopped to think why we tip? Like why tipping is a practice in the U.S. and almost nowhere else. So tipping your server, your bartender, the food delivery guy, is a bad thing. It's a, it's a vestige of slavery. First of all, it's not true. It's an urban myth that we're the only country that tips. That's not not the case. We've dealt with that on a previous show many years ago. But even if we had invented tipping, or even if we were the only country uh, that did it, she took a lot of heat, and then she said, well, I didn't mean to uh, imply uh, that we invented it. I just meant that the widespread practice of paying people less and expecting them to earn income from tipping instead as opposed to extra money on top of wages, is a legacy of slavery. Mm, No, it's not. There is a robust debate, and there always has been, about whether people in industries who are dependent on tips ought to just get a wage and not be dependent on the tips. In other words, if instead of a lower hourly wage 
and then you make it up with tips. Why don't just pay those people what we pay, you know, other jobs that are not tip oriented or, or receiving of tips? So that's a that's a that's a legitimate question, and you can have that discussion, and we've had it. But the idea that that is somehow a legacy of slavery, this is the whole if all I have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thinking. This this lady, her entire sort of, you know, handle and her identity and her fame, if you will, her fifteen minutes, as Warhol called it, is based on everything is slave related. Everything is slavery. So next time you go to tip your server or the lady that does your nails or whatever, I hope you feel like the plantation master that you are. (laughs) Maybe you could not give the person a tip and instead give them a lecture. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, excuse me, uh, before, yeah, okay, uh, here's my, uh, you know, debit card. Um, I'm not going to be tipping you tonight, but, but, could you sit down here in the booth with us for a minute? I want to explain. My date and I want to explain why we're not going to give you a tip tonight. So here's the thing. Have you heard of the 1619 Project? Uh, sir, I have some other tables to get to. Yeah, I'll be quick. So um, if I gave you a tip, that would be a legacy of slavery. And since I don't want that, and I'm sure you don't want that, uh, no, I, I, don't, I guess I don't, I'm not going to be giving you a tip. And you can thank me later for not perpetuating slavery by tipping you for your otherwise excellent service. It is weird that people think this. I mean, it is. But what's scary is the 1619 Project, which is, again, Nicole Hannah-Jones' thing, that's in the schools. That is the basically the, um, the game plan Okay, that is the curriculum underpinning in a lot of schools. It's the New York Times. What could be what could be better than that? I mean, we don't need facts. It just feels right. Just go with it. Gives us something to talk about, though, doesn't it? Never run out. See you back here tomorrow at 4, anytime on demand, KTSA.com.